welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my co-editor-in-chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Sonia Cooper from the Celiac Disease Center at the University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. Today, we'll discuss her recent article, A Clinician's Guide to Celiac Disease HLA Genetics, which was published online and in print in October of 2019 in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Dr. Cooper, welcome. Let's set the stage for our listeners. How common is celiac disease in the United States, and which populations are most at risk? Well, thanks so much, Brian. It's really an honor to be able to talk about this publication, which really came out of a need in in my own practice of a better understanding HLA genetics as it relates to celiac disease. So celiac disease is a common disease. It now affects approximately 1% of the U.S. population. And it seems like, uh, at least over the last 50 years or so, the prevalence has been increasing. The populations that we think about who are at increased risk are first-degree family members of individuals with celiac disease, type 1 diabetics, those with autoimmune thyroid disease, anyone who has unexplained iron deficiency or low bone density, and then also in individuals with Down syndrome. Sonia, although the title of your article is A Clinician's Guide to Celiac Disease HLA Genetics, before we discuss these genetic tests, Can you explain why we shouldn't just use serum TTG antibody testing? What are the advantages and disadvantages of that test? Yeah, so serological testing such as tissue transglutaminase, IgA, is really the best screening test for active celiac disease. It really is a test that needs to be done when an individual is ingesting gluten. The advantages of the TTG IgA test is the high sensitivity and specificity of the testing. So you have, you capture most individuals and a positive test um, has good predictive value for the disease. The disadvantages are uh, the problem of individuals who have IgA deficiency, which is an increased prevalence in individuals with celiac disease, which is why we typically will also get a total immunoglobulin A level when we're doing screening to ensure that we're not, we don't of an individual who has IgA deficiency. Also, for individuals who care for children, the TTG doesn't have as good of test performance for younger children, so those under two. In both of those cases, both with uh, IgA deficiency and for children under the age of two, there are other serology tests, so the deaminated gliadin peptide, and that is the IgG actually has good sensitivity and specificity. Other problems with TTG IgA, there are some cases in which you can have false positives. And then uh, when we're using it for monitoring of response to a gluten-free diet, different labs can have different reference ranges. So sometimes it's difficult to compare serologies which are done in different labs. The other thing that needs to be um, always underscored is that the serology testing needs to be done when a patient is on gluten in order to be accurate. Perfect. Great groundwork for the rest of our discussion. So let's start with the basics of celiac genetic testing, since many of our listeners don't focus on genetic testing every day in clinic. What exactly is HLA, and what do DQ2 and DQ8 refer to? 
So I think the nomenclature of HLA genetics is really the most confusing thing about genetic testing. So HLA refers to the human leukocyte antigen proteins, and these are those that help our immune system to distinguish our body's own proteins from proteins made by foreign invaders like bacteria or viruses. And so the HLA proteins are encoded in a region on chromosome 6, which is known as the major histocompatibility complex, or MHC, in humans. And we categorize MHC into three different classes, class 1, 2, and 3. The genes and proteins that are involved in celiac disease are found in the class 2 region, and that region in particular, that location, is called the DQ locus. For an HLA molecule, you have two loci, uh, in this case DQA1 and DQB1, and these genes encode for proteins that are known as the alpha chain and the beta chain. And these proteins then associate, they heterodimerize, on the surface of antigen-presenting cells, and these then present modified gluten proteins to the immune system. And I think the reason why the nomenclature can be confusing is there are different ways in which uh, we can test for HLA. So you can have genetic nomenclature, and this is when we refer to this as HLA typing. And in that case, you'll have basically HLA followed by the DQ, and then it'll have the A1 or B1. There'll be an asterisk, and then there'll be the specific genes to sort of distinguish the different genetic markers. And when we're doing this HLA typing or molecular typing, we generally want to have both the A1 and the B1 locus typed. I refer you to the table in our paper, which is Table 2. That goes through the different uh, specifics of the A1 and B1 and the different chains that we look for in terms of permissive DQ molecules for celiac disease. Sonia, that's a great discussion for our listeners. You may want to go back and replay that because that's just a really wonderful description. And by the way, in the article, the figures and tables are very informative. So, Sonia, what's so special about DQ2 and DQ8? What exactly do they do, and why are they important with regard to antigen presentation? So in celiac disease, the reason why DQ2 and DQ8 uh, increase the risk of celiac disease is these have a special affinity for binding gluten fragments that have been changed by tissue transglutaminase, the enzyme, to make those gluten fragments that have been ingested more immunogenic. And by that, I mean these peptides are changed in a way that they get more negatively charged, and they can then bind with greater affinity to the DQ2 and DQ8 molecules, which have these positively charged pockets. And I recently heard someone describe this phenomenon as something like a hot dog in a bun. If you think of the hot dog as being the immunogenic gluten peptide and the as being the DQ2 or DQ8 protein, that gives you some visual on what this looks like on that antigen-presenting cell. That gluten peptide is then presented to the immune system, specifically CD4 T cells, and these then mount a gluten-specific inflammatory response, which then, of course, leads to the destruction of the villi and all of the subsequent consequences of that. The major thing to note, though, is that the prevalence of DQ2 and DQ8 in the U.S. is about 30 to 40 percent of the population. So a third of individuals in our population carry either DQ2 and or DQ8. Uh, however, only about 3 percent of those individuals will develop celiac disease. So the important concept about 
HLA genetics and celiac disease is that HLA is necessary but not sufficient to trigger the onset of celiac disease. There have to be other so-called hits to actually trigger active disease. I like the way you phrase that as being necessary but not sufficient. And Sonia, you briefly mentioned this but many clinicians think about serum TTG as just an enzyme. But tell us again the exact role that serum TTG plays in this whole process of antigen presentation. The ingested gluten is the peptides are not entirely digested, and those are then absorbed or make their way into the lamina propria of the small intestine of the duodenum. And tissue transglutaminase is an enzyme that then converts these undigested gluten peptides into ones that are more easily bound to DQ2 and DQ8. And those are then the ones that are presented to the immune system. And as I said, and for reasons that we still have not completely understood, there has to be another trigger that sort of gets this inappropriate immune response going. So the genetics of celiac disease are complicated. It's not just Mendelian inheritance with a patient inheriting one gene from each parent. So why is that important when we consider genetic testing for celiac disease? HLA is definitely more complicated than Mendelian genetics because you could inherit, for example, an alpha chain from your mother and a beta chain from your father. And so, you know, it's not as simple as, you know, I got this from, you know, my maternal side. And the other major difference with Mendelian syndromes, uh, such as cystic fibrosis or Lynch syndrome, for example, is that inheriting celiac genetics doesn't automatically mean that the disease will develop. As I mentioned, you have to have some kind of a second hit, and we've been trying to figure out what that second hit might be, but it could be exposure to certain viruses or antibiotics or infant feeding practices, but that's still an area of active research. The other thing is that you have a risk gradient in terms of HLA genetics and celiac disease, depending on how many of the HLA genes you've inherited. So, for example, someone who has only DQ2, or, or we call that a DQ2 homozygote, they have the highest risk of developing disease compared to, for example, DQ2 heterozygote or a DQ8 homozygote or heterozygote. But again, really clinically when we're applying this, we just want to know if someone has a permissive genetic susceptibility or doesn't, because really the way that we use it is to determine if someone has susceptibility and whether, for example, we should do screening. Or, for example, first-degree relatives uh, who might want to know whether they've inherited the susceptibility and whether they should have screening. Although I should note that that is not something that, for example, the American College of Gastroenterology supports in terms of use of genetic testing in celiac disease. But it is something that in pediatric guidelines or uh, in some clinical scenarios, we do offer testing for first-degree relatives. Sonia, let's take a case of a patient who has GI symptoms when eating gluten-containing products, has an elevated serum TTG, and has villus blunting on duodenal biopsies. Do you need to pursue genetic testing in this patient, or is that evidence enough that he or she has celiac disease? So in this case where you have supportive serologic evidence, so in this case TTG IgA, as well as supportive biopsy findings, villus atrophy, villus blunting, as well as increased IELs, genetic testing is really not needed because the diagnosis is secure. In these cases, they will 100% of the time carry either DQ2 or DQ8, but it's not going to change how you manage these individuals. Okay. 
And let's take a look at another case of a patient who has symptoms thought to be consistent with celiac disease, and you determine that he has both DQ2 and DQ8. He's positive for both. What do you tell him? Is this proof positive that he has celiac disease? So having the genetics, as I mentioned, is necessary, but not sufficient for a diagnosis of celiac disease. So this is definitely not proof positive. Given that there are symptoms, it does make sense to get serologic testing, so tissue transglutaminase, IgA, and likely to proceed with biopsy as well. Again, all of those tests need to be done while a patient is on gluten. So in this case, it just tells us that there's susceptibility and having DQ2 and DQ8 increases the risk that he might have celiac disease, but again, it's is not the only thing. It's not sufficient for a diagnosis. And you kind of briefly touched on this as well a little bit earlier, but I think it's nice for our listeners to hear again. Can you comment on the negative predictive value for celiac disease if you are DQ2 and DQ8 negative? And what about the positive predictive value if you have both DQ2 and DQ8? Sure. So the negative predictive value is very high, so close to 100%, meaning that if individual does not carry permissive HLA, DQ2, or DQ8, then the possibility that they'll develop celiac disease or have celiac disease is vanishingly low. The positive predictive value is low. So that's the other side of the coin. So as I mentioned, genetics do not diagnose celiac disease. They really only give you information about whether someone is susceptible. I mentioned that there's this gradient of risk. So being homozygous for DQ2 or homozygous for DQ8 may carry increased risk compared to those who only have one copy. But again, there has to be other hits that happen. And so we really in clinics just say you have it or you don't. And Sonia, since we have you on the line and we know that many of our listeners do genetic testing to look for celiac disease, what about that other situation where testing shows that a patient has one gene present, DQ2 or DQ8, but not both? What do you tell that patient? This is a case of heterozygote, so a DQ2 heterozygote or a DQ8 heterozygote. And actually, those are the most common, certainly DQ2 is the most common genetic susceptibility we see in individuals with celiac disease. Uh, Again, this is, they'll just be like 30% of the population. And so other testing is needed to confirm that they have active celiac disease. But there are situations in which having this information can be helpful. I alluded to first-degree relatives. Also, when you have individuals where maybe the serology test or the biopsy is equivocal and you're trying to make a case that this is celiac disease, HLA genetics can be helpful uh, in that case as well. So, Coming now to testing, there are now a lot of products and a lot of companies on the market which perform genetic tests. First, and again, you mentioned this, and this is nicely shown in one of your tables, what should be tested? Blood only? What about saliva or cheek cells or urine? And which company should be doing these tests? Are all companies on the market providing reliable, equal information? Genetic testing can be performed on blood or cheek swabs, certainly for children. For example, a cheek swab is ideal because it's easier to obtain. Clearly, you want to make sure this is a reputable laboratory. You want to know what kind of method they're using for their testing. Are they doing HLA typing where they're going to give you information about both the alpha and the beta chain? Are they doing an alternative form, which is sort of more of an 
older methodology, which is the serological typing, where they'll just, it's basically an antibody test where they'll tell you whether you have DQ2 or DQ8. And then you want to make sure that they're reporting all of that out to you. I think with direct-to-consumer testing being more available, they do include celiac genetics or HLA associated with celiac disease on those tests. They're not necessarily reliable because they're not using the type of methodology that I was mentioning before. They're using specific variants, and those may not type appropriately in every individual. So buyer beware with direct-to-consumer tests, and you probably, if you really want to confirm the HLA uh, genetics, do it through a reputable lab. So you're finishing your clinic visit, and you've made the diagnosis of somebody with celiac disease-based not just on symptoms and a positive TTG antibody and biopsies showing villus blunting, but genetic tests for both DQ2 and DQ8 were positive. So this is a, somebody who truly has celiac disease. Now, what do you tell them about testing his or her children or other relatives? Who should be tested and how? So this is one of the most common questions that I get asked by patients is, what about my kids? And many people are concerned about their children and their risk of developing celiac disease. So I did mention that the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines at this time do not advocate first-degree relatives undergo genetic testing, though there are some pediatric guidelines that do include family HLA testing to determine who might be at risk. The American College does recommend HLA testing in other specific scenarios, some of which I mentioned in terms of equivocal, serological, or biopsy findings. If family members are to be tested, you can really think about two approaches. So the first is anyone who is a first-degree family member could get HLA testing first, and then those who carry permissive celiac genetics could do serology screening, for example, with tissue transglutaminase IgA and total IgA, and those who have not inherited the permissive HLA would not need to undergo screening. The alternative is to simply assume that everybody in a family carries the permissive HLA, and then just proceed with serology testing. Certainly anyone who is symptomatic um, should be getting serology testing to look for active disease. And again, that testing should be done while a patient is consuming gluten. The nice thing about HLA testing is that it can also be done in individuals who have started a gluten-free diet, so the genetics are not dependent on the diet. And so another way in which HLA genetic testing can be very useful is someone who has self-started a gluten-free diet and now is coming back to say, you know, do I have celiac disease? One could always start with HLA testing and then only if the permissive HLA is present would you recommend a gluten challenge and further serological and biopsy testing. You know, some patients are worried about genetic tests. Will that label them? Are there risks to this? Will this change their insurance rates? There are federal and state laws that protect against genetic discrimination in general. And I have to say I've done a lot of genetic testing for uh, celiac disease and have not heard of a case where an individual was discriminated against, for example, for life insurance based on HLA testing. Again, I think because the chances of someone developing celiac disease who carries HLA is relatively low, this would not necessarily be something that I think an insurance company um, would necessarily look at 
The only other point maybe to make is that the cost of testing could potentially be an issue. So this should certainly be discussed with the patient. And I always recommend that if there's any concern about an insurance covering the cost of the genetic test, that a patient should inquire first before undergoing the testing. One last question as we wind down. We oftentimes see patients for second or third opinions. They're concerned they have celiac disease. They may have had testing elsewhere showing they were DQ2 and DQ8 negative, but they want repeat testing. Should we repeat the tests? So I think if the testing was a high-quality test in a reputable lab, there's really no need to repeat genetic testing. Certainly, if there is any question or, for example, we just recently had a case like this where a patient had tissue transglutaminase that was positive and had biopsy findings that were very supportive of celiac disease, but the HLA was not DQ2 or DQ8. In those cases, perhaps you could consider doing repeat testing. Possibly there was some kind of a mistake in the laboratory, but for the most part, a high-quality first exam is all that's needed and no need to repeat genetic testing. Sonia, this really has been a wonderful conversation. I can't thank you enough. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I think the key points are HLA genetics are necessary but not sufficient for triggering celiac disease. Think about the high negative predictive value and really that it can be performed regardless of the diet, and that can be helpful for individuals, many of whom self-start a gluten-free diet because of their symptoms and feel better, but now are coming to you and asking whether they actually have celiac disease. And this can be the first step, the first branch point in terms of determining whether a gluten challenge will be the necessary next step. Again, Sonia, thank you so much. And to our listeners, look at the October 2019 issue online or in press. The illustrations and tables are wonderfully helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brian.